Welcome to the Gospel Journey Podcast. The Gospel Journey exists to help our people get into discipling relationships that are centered on God's Word and led by His Spirit. Today we are in week one of Path 9. The book of 1 Thessalonians will be in chapter 1. My name is Jamie Trussell and I have the privilege of being joined with Steve Winstead. Steve, how are you doing today? Doing well. Excited to be back on another Gospel Journey, uh, kicking it off with you on this podcast, Steve, this morning, I thought maybe the best thing to do is let's just read the introduction as a way to, to get into First Thessalonians and then work our way through this first chapter. First Thessalonians chapter 1, this is the first verse. And Steve, I mix it up a little bit. I'm bringing in a CSB translation this morning. So you got the ESV, I've got the CSB, and we'll see if that helps us along the way. Paul, Sylvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians and God the Father, in the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. So pretty typical introduction, Steve, for yeah. one of Paul's letters. Uh, maybe some weights added to it, if you know, some of the backdrop of the persecution that's going on for the Thessalonian church. Yeah, this is, um, you know, Thessalonians is, is a unique book among Paul's books. And what's, one of the things that's unique about it is Paul writes, uh, this is a church that he has great joy and celebration in. Not that he did in the other churches, but most of his books are, are highly corrective in nature. He's dealing with, with heavy issues. And here, it's Paul, Silas, Timothy, these three men who went and helped start the church. And uh, Paul sends Timothy back to uh, the church in Thessalonica. When they started, they weren't there very long. We'll talk about that in a minute. But uh, he sends Timothy back to see how they're doing. And unlike most of his reports that he receives back from churches, which nearly every church from Galatians to Colossians to Ephesians, uh, you know, to, to the church in uh, Corinth that's greatly troubled, this church gets a report mm-hmm. that they're doing really, really, really well. And there's only a few uh, little corrective issues that Paul deals with in this book. Yep. They're pretty, pretty minor. Yeah, exactly. And on top of that, the, to be doing so well amidst what, uh, most likely are some pretty uh, tense uh, circumstances of persecution is really something Paul highlights as a mark of their faith and almost as a, hey, if you if you start to wonder, do you really know the Lord, you are persevering amid circumstances when a lot of people would have quit mm-hmm. and to draw encouragement. And Paul draws encouragement from that. And he moves on to thank. So, so you mentioned Galatians. You know, Galatians is unique because Paul does not, actually thank God for the Galatian church no. in his introduction. Yeah, it's Paul's probably his most harsh letter in tone, and really uh, it's it's the letter that I feel like Paul has the most anger with because Absolutely. they've they've done the one thing that really gets Paul's blood boiling more than anything else, which is taking what they call the gospel. That's right. And it's a false gospel. And they've but tampered with it. Yes. That's that, right. That's the, you know, he'll deal with a lot of things, the uh, immorality of the Corinthian church and those things, but really, whenever he gets really upset, it's when you've changed the gospel. Yeah, that's a good point for us to make here at the beginning of this book because if there's any theological issue or conflict going on for the Thessalonians, it's really centered around uh, end times mm-hmm. and and being either overly concerned with it or too anxious about it or fearful that maybe they missed it or. And, and that while that is an important theological issue, Paul does not bring that up at the beginning of the letter no. because they've got the essential things right, and they're holding on to those. And he's patient. He'll address it at the end, but he's not overly anxious that they may have some different thinking on what is an important area of theology, but certainly not a, uh, maybe we should say, the bullseye of the target of yeah. theology. Absolutely. And even, even in that introduction you just read, you see— uh, 
in a way, the respect of the church that they have for Paul, Silas, and Timothy. Paul mm-hmm. oftentimes will give a little bit of a resume. Hey, I'm an apostle, mm-hmm. and give some things that reminding them, I have weight and authority from God that he has given to me. Here, he doesn't do that. The church loves Paul, knows Paul, respects him, and his introduction is very, very brief. And he goes instantly, and we'll see in a minute in verse 2, he starts off with a prayer. That's right. Yeah, and let's look at it. We always thank God for all of you, making mention of you constantly in our prayers. And here's what I love. He then tells us kind of the main thing. When he thinks about the church in Thessalonica, uh, here's what he thinks about. We recall in the presence of our God and Father are really three things. Your work produced by faith, one. Your labor motivated by love, two. And your endurance inspired by hope. Your Lord Jesus Christ. So you see the faith, hope, and love mm-hmm. uh, uh, working out here. And I actually like I like the way it's stated in the CSB in this instance a little bit better than the ESV because as I was reading this uh, the other morning, Steve, I'm going, what a great way if our life could just be framed by three things, that our works are produced by faith, which faith is simply an act of trust in God, that all of our labor will be motivated by love, and we would go on in endurance inspired by the hope or the guarantee of what we have in Christ uh, that is to come. Yeah. Um, what a what a clear and powerful way to define our lives. And I think sometimes when we look and uh, it's the simple acts of obedience and faith and love and being uh, consistent that really define who we are in Christ. And here Paul writes right off the bat, he's giving great thanks for this church in Thessalonica, uh, a church that if you want to see the start of it, we go to Acts 17 Hmm. and Paul showed up there and it says that he was there, um, him, Silas and Timothy, for three Sabbath days. So um, we know he, he could have been there as little as three weeks. Right. Some say maybe six months. We're not certain. But what that this church starts with an immediate persecution. Mm. And we see when they start, Paul's pattern, he goes to the synagogue first. And we see some Jewish people convert and trust that Jesus is the Messiah. We see some prominent women. We see some uh, uh, well-educated Greeks convert. But then we see instantly a hostility and they're meeting in the house of uh, Jason. That's where their church started, was in, the, uh, in a house, and that was where they're meeting. And they're, the persecution is so high that Paul, Silas, and Timothy are run out of town. That's why Paul writes this letter. Yeah. He's like, okay, this church that we spent a short period of time with, how are they doing? What's going on? And really, oftentimes persecution, one of the unique things about it, it weeds out those who are... Um, Christian or saying they're Christian for uh, wrong motivations. Yeah, any advantageous purpose. Yes. That's right. Yeah. And and these, the Thessalonians, the opposers of the church are so zealous that they chase Paul and his uh, team down to the next city. Mm-hmm. So there, there's a passionate persecution here that this church starts with uh, that we'll see. You can go to uh, Acts 17 and see that. And now Paul's writing back to them, having heard the report from Timothy, and there is a great thankfulness to hear how they're doing. So Paul, uh, and you're gonna, we're going to see this a lot of his language, is very uh, uh, paternal in nature, but it's a joyous parent. Uh, most of his books are the corrective parent. That's right. This is a, bo- uh, uh, a book, and it's shorter in nature, because oftentimes when you're celebrating and praising, uh, you, you, you can be quicker in that. And that's what Paul is celebrating and praising this church for being faithful in their example. And just to maybe draw a little bit of a uh, implication for, for us 
in in our current time it, it it's notable what he praises them for it's also notable for what is not there and if we think if we were to praise a church today or, or think of something that we would highlight and celebrate you have to you have to honestly step back and wonder would it be praising faith hope and love being present somewhere or would it be growth numbers programming energy in a worship service is is uh none of the logistics or dynamics of the actual corporate gathering as far as how they're experienced or how they are emotive or uh, that's not the central focus of Paul's thanksgiving for this church it is the foundational rooted elements of christian living that he thinks is worthwhile to praise god for yeah, yeah the the things that are common in our culture that when we talk about how's the church doing what's going on in a church that we measure those by paul um isn't really mentioning any of those numeric any of those what uh the service is like any of those things he's talking no about, commentary on the preaching no commentary on the preaching he's speaking of their faithfulness and then he's going to speak next, and we'll get there in a second, to the implications and how mm-hmm. their faithfulness, uh, what happens as a result of their faithfulness. And that's one of the great joys of what's going on here. So, Yeah, and the, the great thing about this first chapter is it's only 10 verses, which is pretty unique for our podcast purposes because we can almost work our way through where we can't most of the time. But, but just to take that next section uh, where he does show the outworkings of that, it, it, we probably need to say just a, a word here on, on verse 4, which is maybe the only theologically hairy part of this first chapter where it does say, For we know, brothers and sisters, loved by God, that he has chosen you. Uh, now, this is not a podcast devoted to uh, different positions on election or predestination, uh, but we can say with great biblical affirmation that if God is sovereign, it stands that he is sovereign over all things. And so God is sovereign over salvation. And while uh, people across Christianity disagree, or maybe the way that that plays out, it's an inescapable fact that God is in control of all things. And I think we can affirm that in unity mm-hmm. here at Harvest, regardless of where you may fall. Uh, and, and the Bible is very clear that, that mankind is culpable or responsible for their sin. And we must respond to the gospel. And yet God, as Paul says here, uh, God has uh, sovereign control and has initiated. And no one comes to faith in Christ unless God, in his willful choice, initiates the work of salvation in someone's direction. Yeah. Uh, that, that verse 4, uh, one of the other things I love about it is he starts off, he says, For we know brothers loved by God. And that term brothers is a term uh, of, of endearment. He doesn't refer to them uh, as as uh, children. He refers to them as, as brothers, that this is a, a group that is uh, doing well, and he's going to encourage them. And he refers to them brothers 15 times in this book, 1 Thessalonians, 7 times in 2 Thessalonians. So that's, a, that's sort of his term of endearment and love for uh, this church, that they're brothers who are co-laboring in the gospel, uh, chosen by God. Because in verse 5, he says, Because our gospel came to you not only in word, but in the power of the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. Mm. So that's where uh, he celebrates is that they have received the gospel by the power of the Holy Spirit and with a a full conviction. And that term sort of grabbed me, a full conviction mm. of the gospel. Yeah, and, and I think the way that, that we would know it came in full conviction or, or full assurance is it makes a tangible impact on their life. Mm-hmm. There's a drastic change. 
And, and so it's one thing to go somewhere, share the gospel, professions of faith are made, and, but, but then nothing really happens. There's no transformation. Well, this group of Thessalonians was transformed. And Paul's going to say the greatest way I know that you were transformed is that you are staying faithful in the midst of persecution. I mean, look what he says in, in verse 6. You yourselves became imitators of us. Now, we listen a lot of times to uh, either people talk or preach or maybe in our own conversations or Paul says, okay, uh, you know, follow me as I follow Christ. Follow me as I follow Christ. Well, that's a nice to think about in the the really sweet, gentle loving, happy ways of being uh, more kind to people, helping the poor, uh, you know, whatever that may be. Paul here is saying when they became imitators of us, he's talking about you suffered with us. Mm-hmm. You were you imitated us in the fact that you navigated persecution the same way we did. Now, we don't often factor that in in the follow me as I follow Jesus paradigm. Yeah. Um, yeah, persecution is one of those realities of, of a gospel implication in our life. Uh, nobody gravitates toward persecution, and we all, uh, in fact, are adverse to it and want to run from it. But being when we trust Christ and we're truly a new creation, when we have uh, full conviction, then our love for Christ and our willingness to, to suffer for him, it, it, it outruns anything else in our lives. So there's a great joy in that. So Paul, who they saw suffer, they were he was run out of town. They become imitators of what they've seen in Paul and by implication of what they've seen, what Paul uh, has seen in the Lord. So it, it all goes back to right. even in our discipleship and our investment of other people, we're not saying follow me, be like me so much. It's like the Christ in me. What you, If you see any, by God's grace, if you see anything that Christ has done, in my life, imitate that. And I think by implication here in our gospel journey groups, our discipling relationships, uh, there, there, there is a component of that, which means we have to let people in to the hardships we're going through so that they, hopefully by God's kindness, can learn and have modeled for them how to navigate hardship faithfully. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the, uh, I think, challenges in any discipling relationship is really dropping your guard enough to let people in, not just to your Bible knowledge or your devotional routine or, or you know, uh, all the things that are more comfortable and get you on, on maybe more of a, a spiritually healthy projected uh, image, but to go, hey, these are areas of hardship. This is where I'm struggling. It might not be persecution, uh, per se, like is going on here, but but anyone we're engaged with that we're trying to lead towards maturity in Christ, they've got to see the reality of hardship and how to faithfully navigate hardship. It's an indispensable part of discipleship. Mm-hmm. And, and reading on in verse 6, what you just talked about, he says, halfway through with, uh, you received the word of God in much affliction, and then with joy of the Holy Spirit. So there's a uh, an affliction, a difficulty, but in the midst of their affliction, they could see the, the, the beauty and the joy of the gospel more clearly, and they received it with great joy. Mm-hmm. So oftentimes, it's in the midst of our realizing that this broken, fallen world uh, will not offer us uh, joy, will not offer security, will not offer us hope. And we may be in the midst of, of difficulty that we see the great joy of the hope of the gospel mm-hmm. and the Holy Spirit illuminates us to that and that's what happened with them and here's the result okay so the and they they may we don't even know if they had a vision for this or knew this was going to happen 
But as a result of their faithfulness in receiving the message uh, with joy from the Spirit, they became an example to, in the text says, to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia, to, mm-hmm. to all of them. This little persecuted church uh, that, as you've already uh, articulated, didn't get a ton of face time with Paul, certainly not as much as the Ephesian church would have, uh, and yet they are standing firm. It says, the word of the Lord rang out from you. There's an echo effect there, right? It is it is going out and out and, and bouncing from believer to believer, rooted here in this church in Thessalonica, uh, that in every place your faith has gone out. Therefore, Paul says, we don't need to say anything, for they themselves report what kind of reception we had from you and how you turned from idols to serve the living and true God. It's a pretty uh, fascinating statement. The Apostle Paul would say, I don't actually have anything to add because of the example you've set for Christ. Yeah, and, and that's a that's a beautiful thing. I, I love when I meet with somebody and they'll share with me somebody who's in, 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 and I'll see their faithfulness and their hunger and their passion for Christ and, and their understanding of the gospel. And then they'll share with me who's been investing in them, who's been pouring into them. And, and that's where you really see like, hey, the, the gospel is ringing out in that person's life mm-hmm. as one person passes what God has done in their life to another. And it says... Uh, it, it sounded out um, here. It, it's like the, the word there could be translated, some will translate it as echo, and it's in uh, the perfect tense in the Greek. And what that implies is that this is increasing. Mm. It's an, it, it, like their echo as other people are following their testimony, people will follow the testimony of those who are following them, and it echoes, it, it, it gets louder, it, it goes out, and it continues to do so. So their example continues on and carries on uh, beyond them so much so that, as you mentioned, Paul and Timothy are going, and Silas are saying, we don't really have to add anything. We don't have to come in and bring anything. Uh, The word is going out from you. And uh, the great example that Paul highlights here of, of, okay, so Thessalonian church, these people come to Christ, they're standing against persecution. What's being said about them? What's the what's one of the main testimonies, not of Paul towards them, but of others? So those who are hearing their testimony, here's here's uh, uh, the way Paul captures it, that, that you have turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead that that what is being articulated about this church by other christians is this radical transformational undeniable conversion there is no mixing there's no confusion so yes step back and just take our local body here i mean look if you had a week's worth of video footage on my life you may experience some confusion about who my ultimate allegiance is to depending on the week. I mean, you, you, Absolutely. you sit back and go, oh, man, okay, he looks like he's aligned to Christ there. Oh, he's really self-centered there. He's really, and it's not that this church was sinless, but it was. it is a picture of uh, there is no mistaking who their ultimate allegiance is to. Mm-hmm. And and this, what I love, this book applies right to us today, even as we look and we go, in in our lives, are we in a position where, if people became imitators of what Christ has done in us, what would that what would that look like? And and how are we? And, and it's not something that we try to manufacture or produce. It comes from us walking with Christ and being near Him and, and loving Him and drawing uh, uh, near to to Christ. And here He says, 
that they've when they've left idols. Um, you know, in our culture, we often look back at idols as little statues or right. or something that we don't struggle with idols is is the thought. Right. And that's and, and you know one of the the great works that's really helped a lot of people understand that is you know Tim Keller's. Uh, book on counterfeit gods, and what we right. really see is that, and we'd recommend that. Yeah, it's an yeah. excellent book. Um, is that our hearts? He says our hearts are idol factories, mm. meaning we're always finding something to attach ourselves to worship, and a lot of times it's things that are that can even be good. That's right. It can be things that aren't necessarily sinful until they begin to take position above God. Right. That could be things like family, work, um, those sorts of things that are. Uh, good and noble things that you That's should right. care about. And the hardest idols to recognize are the ones that are seemingly good things. Yeah. It's it, it's pretty easy to recognize something that is overtly sinful that I'm addicted to. Mm-hmm. But if my kids or my wife are driving my self-worth and identity and value, uh, that's a worship issue. Mm-hmm. And what Paul here is saying is, you may have some theological things to work through, church, at, at, you know, in Thessalonica. Uh, you do not have a worship issue. And that's the main point I think he's making in verse 9, is yeah. that you are not a schizophrenic Christian. And I, I borrow that term not to make fun of anyone who struggles with that mental illness, but just to capture the picture of one day you're in, one day you're out, one day you're in. One, their culture didn't allow for them to be one day in mm-hmm. and one day out. And probably the root of a lot of their persecution is actually in the turning from the idols because that was an economic effect towards the pagan culture in Thessalonica. They were losing money because they couldn't make the idols and sell them anymore because they refused to worship them. Yeah, so their trusting in Christ is uh, pushing them to go against the culture that they're living in. So by nature, culture is is not going to like that. And the world we live in, it's increasingly becoming that way. To be obedient and to follow Christ, there's going to be a, a cultural uh, persecution, a cultural um, uh, pushback on us walking in obedience to who Christ is and what his word calls us to be, uh, doing that obviously in great love and compassion. But at the same time, there's, there's, the world does not like it when the, mm-hmm. someone has allegiance mm-hmm. to something higher than what uh, the worldly culture uh, esteems as our highest allegiance should be too. Yeah, I couldn't agree or or have said that um, any better. In the words of Paul, I have nothing to add to that, Steve. Um, uh, I do think that a point of discussion or maybe reflection for the Gospel Journey groups this week could be, is there anything, it may just need to ask the Spirit, maybe you really don't know, but anything that, that you are going, you know what, I... I, yes, I love God, I worship God, but I need to turn for some things uh, back to the living God. I need to turn from uh, social media and, mm-hmm. and maybe towards the living God. I need to turn from Netflix towards the living God. I need to turn from uh, my kids' uh, Little League sports career to the living God. I mean, I'm pulling things out of you know the thin air in your office right now, Steve, but you know, there, it's all of those little things that I think we don't even evaluate if they're impacting us because they're a normal rhythm of life. Mm-hmm. But is the spirit prompting us? Even, even me, it could it be could it be a home remodel? Just mm-hmm. for I mean, whatever it is, those things are all good things. But are those impacting me in ways that are pulling me away from the living God and rending my heart in a different direction? Yeah, and I think one of the one of the practical things in this book it's going to pull us toward. Um, we live in a culture where we're very individualistic. That's the American culture. 
uh, the self-made idea of the self-made person, the idea of, of our life as our own. But mm. that's counter to Scripture. That's right. Our, our life impacts other people. And this book is going to uh, declare really the beauty of how that happens. And, and I hope that as we do that, there's an inspiration that we all get to go, if God can take my limited time here on earth and use it for his glory in the, and, and for, his, and for uh, good in other people's lives, to in, inspire them to trust him more fully, to experience the deep joy of the Lord. If my life can be used in that way, uh, praise be to God. That's an amazing thing. Because oftentimes we're thinking, you know, my faith is mine. It's about me. Uh, we all are influencing people. Uh, around so, us. So, what what would be if people imitated us? What what is what does their life begin to look like? Are we walking and pursuing the Lord closely enough that if they imitate things in our life? They begin to reflect the Lord more fully. Mm, uh, really, really, the idea that our life's not our own. You know, we were that's bought good. with a price. So, yeah, and that's a fitting way to segue to the last part here of chapter one. He says to wait for a son from heaven. So we, there's an active. Uh, their waiting is described by faith, hope, love, endurance, perseverance. So waiting on Christ's return. Here's what he says about Jesus, whom he raised from the dead. It's the indispensable fact of Christianity. Mm-hmm. The, the singular point that if we lose, everything else falls apart. The resurrected Christ. And for 15 seconds on that, we firmly believe in a literal, physical resurrection, bodily resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And it is the central point of Christianity. Uh, who rescues us from the coming wrath. And we can just close down the last couple of minutes here, Steve, and just talk about the idea of wrath. It's not something that's maybe a main player in Christian conversation. Uh, it's it's maybe on the bit more of even the periphery of our, of our teaching sometimes. But God's wrath is real. Yes. God's future wrath towards all those who have not, by his grace and mercy, repented of their sins and turned to trust Christ. God's future wrath is coming. Uh, God's wrath on those who die apart from Christ is eternal and ongoing. And while those are not the comforting fireside, uh, no pun intended, discussions that we would do with, with one another that are, that are real warm and fuzzy, they are true. They're true. And a lot of times, you know, some have, have heard the, you know, what we call the hellfire brimstone preaching. Uh, some have pushed back on dealing with the wrath of God because it's not comfortable. It doesn't feel good. I don't like that. I don't like to think that anybody is going to endure the the wrath of God. Mm. Uh, but it's a reality. And oftentimes what people want to do is not let God be God. And we'll, right. we'll want to judge God and say, God, his wrath can't be as severe and as harsh as is painted in Scripture. So I want to come in and, and lessen that. And that's really me playing God in order for me that's to right. feel more comfortable. That's right. And God is God, and He's the one who talks about wrath. And while I, uh, you know, I, I like for wrath to only exist for a select few, Adolf Hitler and a few on that list. Right. Um, the reality is, is we all deserve wrath. And and until I come to the point of reality of who I am, that I have sinned and I deserve the wrath of God, mm-hmm. and that I'm hopeless. I'm hopelessly. Um, Deserving of that wrath, the only hope I have is Christ. Yeah, and I think you've hit at a good point because one of the main shifts in modern culture is the shift that humanity is inherently good. And when, and look, this even creeps into the church. 
when you're operating from the assumption that we are basically good, then you're going to uh, determine that you deserve basically good things. And yet uh, the same God whose wrath is promised to come is the very same God who paid the price to deliver you from the wrath. And so it's, it's, God is a complex, majestic uh, uh, being whose depths we'll never fully know. But to think about the fact that uh, he, he created the penalty for sin and then paid the penalty for sin so we don't have to suffer underneath the condemnation of sin. And so it's not like he's up in heaven saying, my wrath is coming, there's nothing you can do to escape. He's going, my wrath is coming, and by the way, I've made the pathway available for which you don't have to fear the wrath that is to come. But the point you made earlier is, yeah, we do want to lessen it because at some level it's almost like we feel like we need to make God more gracious. Mm -hmm. It's almost as if he's not perfectly gracious already. And, and I would say we don't need to make God more gracious. We need to respect his holiness yeah. more so than need to try to attempt to make him more gracious. And, and, and that's where the Thessalonians are. They, they are living in light of a holiness because they live in anticipation of Christ's return. I mean, they're, yeah, they're almost it's, living it's in view. They, right. they, they have it in their mind in view like, hey, it's, it's w- any minute. It's any minute. That's right. Whereas um, I think, you know, nearly 2,000 years later, we're looking, going, hey, we believe he's coming back. We believe he's returning. It's been a while, <laughs> so uh, we we don't have to live with this urgency that his return is coming. Yeah. But there is a great urgency. That's right. We're, we're all given uh, our days are numbered, our days are allotted, and how we use those days, they're, they're, they're counted. So there is a uh, either Jesus is going to return in a number of days or we're going to go to meet him. And we have that limited number of days that we have here on earth. And Paul is praising this church for how they're living That's with the right. days that they have. That's right. That's right. Well, Steve, great to be with you this first week. Look back, uh, look forward to joining you next week as we look into chapter 2 of First Thessalonians. Mm-hmm.